You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to another episode of the Women in Archaeology Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss why all archaeological information isn't publicly available. I'm Emily Long, and I'm here with Chelsea Slotten, Kirsten Lopez, and Cheryl Fogel-Hatch. Thank you, Emily. It's always so great. Happy you're all here. Absolutely. And since, Cheryl, this is your first time recording with us, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm mostly on the academic side. I finished my PhD a couple years ago from the University of New Mexico, and my research was on Paleo-Indian projectile points, and I was looking at stylistic uniformity across New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming, and, and looking at uh, similarities and differences in some analysis. I then, while I was writing up my dissertation for uh, family and personal circumstances, uh, moved to Baltimore, Maryland, where I have since been involved in a couple of um, historical archaeology um, excavations short term, and they've been within the city of Baltimore and within a couple different uh, public parks. Oh, and cool. I've had yeah, I'll tell you more about that sometime. I've had, uh, when I was in New Mexico, I worked for a little while as a, a student employee of a federal agency. So I have reviewed some gray literature and somewhat familiar with the Section 106 process on that side. And I had a little bit of museum experience, internships, and research uh, in museum collections. Nice. So you've seen kind of both sides of the issue, like the information that can I think be so. shared yes. and the information that can be shared. Yes. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really happy you're here and hope you can join us in other discussions as well. In a nutshell, why isn't every piece of information such as site records, artifact counts, um, access to museum collections, all the above, why isn't every piece of information available to the public? I can jump in on this one. So, you know, as you mentioned on the, before we started, it's, it's not part of the law uh, due to a number of circumstances in the United States. Uh, the location of archaeological sites is actually exempt from um, the Freedom of Information Act. And some people might be quite objected uh, objected to that or may have many objections to that. You can edit that piece. (laughs) And the reason is, so when you have things that are fairly valuable and it's not so much monetary value as much as the tale that we tell about our own history and others being and the, the physical artifacts and physical remnants of that is something that we connect to. I mean, this is you know kind of basic 
bare bones of why we all do archaeology, right? So the public interest is similar, and so is the interest uh, from looters. This is why they go out and why they do this. And the, the biggest danger and one of the largest fears and risks and something that we see um, from the CRM end, uh, unfortunately more frequently than we like, is people do find archaeological sites and then loot them, and they'll dig them out, and we lose all of the information and especially in the U.S. when it's something as sensitive uh, as not uh, Euro-American history, that's the prehistory of the tribes, that has a certain sensitivity to it that we really want to safeguard and protect for not only our future generations, but for the, the tribe's future in, in their recovery and interpretation of their past with our assistance and preservation and safeguard. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, I guess, a nutshell of the, the law, basic underlying reason why it's there. Mm -hmm. And just to, for, for our listeners, specifically with the law, and if you're interested in it, it's the uh, National Historic Preservation Act. Um, specifically states in uh, one of the sections, and you can get into very specific sections if you like, it's section 9A under section 304 but um so in the archaeological resources protection act there is a specific uh section that states that archaeological site locations should not be included in any kind of documentation made available to the general public and so that's the internet reports site records etc and so that's building off of what kirsten is saying um with the law there's a good reason that these sites should not be, the locations themselves should not be made available. And it is very specifically stated in our cultural resource management laws. Um, there's a lot of jargon in these laws, so they can be a little bit difficult to parse through. But yeah, in a nutshell, it's just we, they're vulnerable and they need to be protected. So one thing I wanted to uh, kind of put out there is that one of the objections I've heard is, well, you know, we should be able to go see these things. We should have ways of blockading them or protecting the sites with fences or with guards or cameras or whatnot. Um, and before that even comes up, I want to snuff a few of those out. <laughs> so to begin with, uh, the first one, um, fences and guard rails and interpretive with fences. And I have, seen an unfortunate number of most of the sites that have in place has been I'm gonna rip this fence down and loot and put the back pile over it and that's been done several times to individual sites that are particularly wonderful or have so much potential and they're just you know plundered um, with regard to obviously having a security guard there all the time. There's too many and on people too expensive. That one seems fairly obvious. Um, the animal cams, I've had that brought up to me before as well, you know, that biologists put out in certain areas to see, you know, what animals are walking by and you can have um, like motion sensors to detect when people are coming up and catch them on camera. Um, that's similarly expensive. Uh, part of the, the challenge is most of the public don't realize how many archaeological sites there are. And I'll just put up thousands, hundreds of thousands in the U.S. alone, um, varying states of completeness and depth, 
However, um, as far as protection goes, it is a huge issue and it's easier and cheaper to the public since the public in the end, um, you know, pays for a lot of this, not all of it, um, is it just keeping those records, um, hush hush, I guess mm-hmm. is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, like you say, I mean, it's not going to keep people from going out and looking for archeological sites on their own. And we're primarily talking about archeological sites on federal lands and state lands. Um, private property it's a whole other can of worms there (laughs) yeah yeah Um, and that varies widely by state exactly and so what we're referring to specifically are archaeological sites on federal land state lands which have um, a much higher uh much higher protection ability um with the laws that we have but even then yeah like kirsten's saying you can put a fence around every single site that doesn't mean it's going to keep out looters or even just interested public um i'm familiar where i live there's a really well-known rock art site but in the local area it is also known as a party spot you know people go there and drink and you know teenagers are doing their thing and um there's fremont rock art and there's tons of graffiti all over it park service has put fences around it they've put up interp signs it's no um, animal cams no matter what they do it keeps getting slammed so regardless of the different protection measures created it's still getting slammed by the public and that's definitely a topic we can get into later in the episode is well, what do you do once locations are known and they're visited by the public? At least the laws provide some measure of protection. At least it's a good start. Doesn't mean people can't find things on their own, but at least it's a start that we are not just giving all the information out saying, have fun. Not that everybody has bad (laughs) intentions, but unfortunately even the best of intentions when people go out hiking can cause inadvertent destruction to a site whether it's walking on mm-hmm. pueblo and walls or touching rock art because you're like oh that's cool it well, even mindless damage is a problem and so there's a balance between i don't want to tell someone because as soon as you know it's here looters might come mm-hmm. and most people in the world are not trained archaeologists and you can completely unintentionally walk over a Pueblo wall and not even realize it and cause damage, you know, not intentionally, not realizing it just because you don't recognize or know what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so which is better for the the site that you're looking at? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And alongside um, some of those too. So, there are a few places where, and this kind of gets into the uh, visitation a little bit, uh, but the, the mention earlier where we have variation in state laws, uh, there are some places, like you mentioned, that have, I mean, we all know there are archaeological sites that are well visited. We have Jamestown. You know, there's, there are World Heritage sites around the country in the Southwest, in the east um, and these are wonderful places to visit but they are organized for that and that's mm-hmm. where there are certain places that are made for visitors 
and they're impressive and fabulous and definitely worth visiting. Um, most of the archaeological sites that we're referring to that are under these protections, like Chelsea's mentioning, you, you probably, an untrained eye would not realize it's a site. Um, and that's kind of where it gets into where archaeologists are not holding secrets to keep the public out. And, you know, we're not putting up this wall of anti-public. Uh, a lot of it's protection. Most people wouldn't know it if they, it, you know, poked him in the nose. <laughs> exactly. uh, and that's not to say it's anything against the general public, but like anything else, you know, I wouldn't know how to, you know, one type of pipe from another, like a plumber would, um, or, you know, any other specialization I don't know law like a lawyer so that's something that I think some people kind of lose connection with or lose sight of when they they get mm -hmm. kind of stonewalled wrapped up in the idea mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and building off of that like like you said we're not trying to keep secrets and be like haha this information is only ours I mean these laws even prevent the sharing of locations within the agency as well. So let's say you have people who want to build, you have your trail crews and they want to build a trail. They don't have a map with all the archaeological sites. Um, wildfires, uh, the fire crews, they do not have a map with all the archaeological sites. Archaeologists specifically have to go and have meetings with each of these departments and, you know, talk about well there are sites here and I can take you to them and show you where they are and or create like a giant boundary where you can't go but like this information isn't even available to those who work for the agency unless you are within the archaeology department mm -hmm. so it's kind of it's a protection even from other departments just in case so you don't bust a trail through you know an archaeological site and that kind of thing and Cheryl, in your experience, because you said you did work for the government at one point, did you ever have any issues of where you felt like you had to, people were asking you for that information, and you kind of had to skirt around like how much you could tell and how much you couldn't? I didn't personally, but uh, contemporaries of mine uh, who worked more closely with the Native American tribes in certain places did, and they just have to say this area is off limits, um, and because in consultation with a particular Pueblo, you know, they've said this area's off limits. So, I mean, my job was mostly paper pushing and report reviewing and correspondence. And, and so I didn't have a lot of uh, public contact at that time. Mm -hmm. And did you ever have any, any contact with um, other departments and having to relate information? Cause I know. Oh yeah. And that kind of thing. Like, we're you, yeah, the, you know, anytime a project is proposed, you know, campground or, or anything, yeah, it had to go through our department, you know, the archaeology and, and the biology and the reviews. So there were certain parts of the agency that uh, thought we were obstructing because you know, <laughs> everything would be slowed down while we did our records check. And you know, those, those of us who needed to go out would go out. But it's so important. The area. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a it's necessary. It's all part of the process, and I think, right. like what you guys were were saying earlier, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there is a reason behind this. We're not just being jerks, <laughs> right? And also, I, I want to touch on that these protections exist between archaeologists too. 
Um, oh, yeah. As an archaeologist, you don't have access to all sites. Um, <laughs> you have to have, you know, every state and locality has its own laws and rules and regulations and permissions on accessing these. Uh, there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through in most cases mm -hmm. in order to be certified. Sometimes it's only for a certain limited amount of time um, if you're doing research. And it's it's something that is... It is, it is fairly limited, and uh, even amongst professionals. Although some of that also depends on where you are. I've certainly had experiences in other countries where you happen to find out that a dig is going on, or you're talking to someone and you mention you're an archaeologist, and the next thing you know, they're like, oh, like we're doing this thing. You should come by tomorrow. <laughs> and it's not that they're putting a trowel in your hand. But they're giving Even you a you whole lot of one. information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've actually um, worked abroad and have been in sort of a similar situation to where I was working in a museum setting and interested in, you know, a certain uh, era. And there was, because it's, and I don't want to bash Europe, but because it's Europe, <laughs> I'll just put that out there. It was a site that's about now... 20 plus years old and it's still open excavate like the it was never covered mm -hmm. and i know that's more common over there than over here and it was all fenced off and everything but you know, we went by and saw it and it's not super accessible to the public but it's just got it like this chain link fence <laughs> around it and it's this gaping hole in the ground so mm -hmm. you know if you didn't know what you're looking at it might just look like a mine or an abandoned something or other um or as Eddie Izzard but likes to say, a series of small walls. <laughs> <laughs> the way that we do it in the U.S. is different um, from how it's done in many areas of the country. And I think it's probably more consistent with other colonial powers, such as Australia um, and probably what I would hope may occur in South Africa. I have no idea about how it's done in South Africa. Um, I have a couple of friends who have excavated there, but I don't know much about their experience with that um, or this topic in particular so um, but I know when it is the administration in power is more or less the same people who have their ancestry in that country um, there's usually a little bit less of a I don't want to say less of a secrecy, um, but it's it seems or feels very open in, in much of Europe uh, that I've experienced there don't, along the lines of public access and knowledge. Yeah, there don't seem to be as many debates about ethics and who should have access and who gets to control yeah. what's going on in Europe. But again, you are talking about a more culturally homogeneous group. Exactly. You know, and Which, you're not dealing with the colonial influence. Although we should really do an episode on colonial influence in archaeology. Mm -hmm. That would be fabulous. And I do think that will probably, we can touch on that a little bit in terms of uh, heritage tourism and the fact that ah. some places are simply easier to visit due to a different mindset uh, for the archaeological sites. So we'll get into that later on in this episode. But in the meantime, we're going to take a quick break. 
digitaltraining.site, we believe that spending money on learning is great if it helps you solve a problem. If you're a cultural resource management professional, you want to make your workflow faster and more efficient to beat your competitors. If you're a student or young professional, you'll want to learn marketable skills to get that job. If you're a faculty, you want to stay up to date with teaching topics, but you feel overwhelmed by all the technologies and tools out there. Digitaltraining.site is for you. You'll get relevant topics by top-level instructors and downloadable materials at an affordable cost. And if you're an enrolled student, apply for a scholarship and attend for free. Start learning now at digitaltraining.site. Welcome back. We're now going to get into the differences or some of the differences that we've seen between states and the laws uh, that govern what is available between states. And Cheryl, you have some insight on that. I have worked in a few different states. There's generally um, procedures that archaeologists use to register sites and online systems that they use to view them. And where I used to work in New Mexico, you could get to links to not all, but a lot of the site reports digitally once you're registered as a qualified archaeologist with the Secretary of Interior Standards and uh, your education experience and you know, if you were a student, have your professor sign off for you, an employee, have your company sign off you, et cetera. And you could get to a lot of the great literature. And then uh, working in Maryland, you know, I still have the education and I have the qualifications. So I get into the system, but there seems to be less of the site reports available online. And it's different states being at different places with the digital availability of the gray literature. And I hear anecdotally that Pennsylvania and Delaware are further along than Maryland, for example. So there's variation through the 50 states for how to find information and how to get literature. And is it typically the uh, the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Officer, that set up these types of websites? Yes, yes. In, in all cases, there's State Historic Preservation Officers that implement the uh, archaeological regulations in, in each state that are, most of them are federal, but there's sometimes some state um, cultural property registers that are involved. Okay. And so, yeah, that makes sense then why all the different state digital systems would be different if, I mean, I think everyone, every state has a couple different shippos. And so, yeah, that would make sense that there'd be different digital archives available. And I'm sure there are a lot of people yeah, who would I mean, love to just that. Just after trying to find something. Mm -hmm. And Chelsea, you were jumping in there? I was say, beyond... The, the SHPO and um, who is setting up the, the archive and the permissions, when you start talking about digitization and digital preservation, there are a lot of practical concerns about the money it takes to digitize information right. and the money it takes to store the information long term and what happens as technology progresses and you have to migrate things to newer formats so that they're still relevant. So some of it I'm sure is motivated by, you know, ethical or archaeological concerns on the part of the shipo, but some of it is probably also motivated by the kind of money that they have access mm -hmm. to and the tax base that they have right. and, and how that is structured in the particular state or even the particular county within a state that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So in the West here, I've seen a lot of variation with that same thing that Cheryl's describing. The digitization, like you're saying, Chelsea, is all over the place and variation. The first most amazing one that I ever saw was a friend of mine who was working on a project in Alaska. And I realized that 
the Shippo records were all, you could look at a map and see the sites and select what records you wanted to look at <laughs> versus searching, hmm. typing, a, a, ran a search for the site type for any other search criteria. It was by this amazing map thing. And some of that, I mean, Alaska, I believe, has a little bit more money uh, on that note. But they, they have, a, have lot a lot more money. <laughs> they also have a lot of researchers from out of state. So that may also play into at least a little bit of it. I don't know um, what it looks like in all states, um, but Oregon was a little bit behind in the digitization. They have some records digitized. Some you still have to go down to Shippo office and look up. Um, or to the you know museum to dig through the physical gray literature if you want the notes <laughs> um, more than just the vague general generalities um, or photos. So it's it, it it varies widely, and that's as we mentioned before. Just as a professional archaeologist, it can still be kind of a pain to get the site information you need for the research that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And just to put it into context for our listeners, like it may not sound like it would take a lot of time to scan a whole bunch of records, but you got to imagine we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pages of site records. And a lot of these pages are probably too fragile to feed through, you know, uh, one of those large scale scanners. So it's just page by page. <laughs> And then putting it all together. Or too muddy. <laughs> too muddy or or, or parts are missing, so you have to put them together. Or you have notebook paper, etc. Or you want to make it searchable and you've got to get this keywords. Exactly. And, so and metadata. Take, I mean, metadata oh, is huge. Right. That's what I meant. So, yeah. So, it can yeah, take that's... a surprising amount of time. And so, just to put that out there, it's not just, you know, you have a little flatbed scanner and then scan, scan, you're done. It's months i tried scanning all of our archaeological records at one park i worked at and i didn't finish we only had like 500 sites and i still couldn't finish because i was trying to get all the site records and all the reports and just so many had to be manually scanned each little page otherwise it would be ripped to shreds in a a larger scanner so it's crazy how much time it can take and there's never enough funding can't emphasize that enough. There's never enough no. funding. <laughs> Bless you, Emily, for even trying. <laughs> I know. There's never <laughs> enough time or funds. It's sad. No Good job for an intern. <laughs> yeah, so if any... Yeah, as an undergrad, definitely. I did a lot of that. <laughs> a lot of scanning. <laughs> a lot so, yeah. of scanning. So if we have any, yes, you know... we got, like, okay. these photos or the uh the slides from like the 70s oh man um mm. we i we got a special scanner that we borrowed i think from some institution other institution and scanned in thousands of these little slides from site excavations in the 1970s and that was like a whole part 10 job to my yeah <laughs> it takes forever but it yeah. is an excellent and I'm like, time that to listen touch. to podcasts. We had a uh, a depression era, 1930s, um, like film, like 16 millimeter film that for one of the first um, 
WPA dams in New Mexico, and we had to get it to a contractor with specialized equipment to get anything off of it. You know, and put the bid out and the pricing, which I don't remember the details for, and I don't know if they did it, but I know I collected proposals for it. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it's super expensive to do that. People don't realize how expensive mm-hmm. that can get. Well, one of the shames about all of this information that has been scanned is that it is pretty much only available to the, the professionals in the field. And it's a shame in that there is so much amazing information out there from the photographs of beautiful archaeological sites and cabins and artifacts to what you were describing with that uh, film from the 1930s. And it'll probably never see the light of day other than for with other <laughs> professionals in the field. And I think that can that's a good segue into, well, then what information is available to the public in general? And... One of the interesting things is that our laws, our cultural resource management laws, do state that we have a responsibility of disseminating certain kinds of information to the public. For example, um, the National Historic Preservation Act uh, states that the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Officer, they have a responsibility to provide the public information, education, training, um, technical assistance for historic preservation, um, that there needs to be uh, an effort to provide all kinds of information about preservation and historic sites, um, even the Archaeological Resources Protection Act um, states that all federal land managers need to establish a program to increase public awareness of the significance of archaeological resources. So here we have these laws stating that we need, as archaeologists, as managers, as what have you, uh, we do need to have this outreach. Well, what information is that in the first place? What can we share? A lot of the stuff that I've seen shared um, most often, even in the West here, is going to be historical. And so that's where you get into, you know, uh, most of the towns in the West are maybe 150 years old. No, 200 would be really pushing. <laughs> Oregon was the day that, what, 1854? So, you know, do the math. That's not that much. I mean, the city of Portland wasn't here 200 years ago. So, in contrast to like Florida, who's had, you know, the Spanish there since the 1500s. So, <laughs> it's kind of all over the place. Um, as far as historic stuff that's available uh, for sharing with the public. But that's usually what I see the most commonly and easily disseminated, mostly due to those ethical concerns. Um, I think there can be stuff uh, more that's shared, but I think we are just in the last five or ten years really starting to touch uh, the tip of the iceberg with collaboration with tribes. Mm-hmm. and. I know in Oregon, there's a number of tribes that have really, in that that time period, have worked on opening new heritage centers and other displays that are amazing uh, to see. And then they get to choose what gets interpreted. And that's something I think is important. Um, You know, we go and find stuff, and I think it's a good idea to collaborate 
with tribes to be like, you know, I have this idea, you know, what do you think? Or I'd like to share stuff from this side or from this park or this area. What do you guys want to present? What do you guys want the, the public to see? And I think that is something that a lot of um, park rangers, managers, agency personnel are afraid to do, <laughs> in all honesty. Um, in the West, a lot of the West, not all the West, but in a lot of the in Washington and Oregon tribes can be fairly powerful. And I think that intimidates a lot of people um, with working through the streams of communication that are in place for, you know, archaeologists tend to be those uh, collaborators and who uh, work between the two cultures. Mm -hmm. many cultures but sets. yeah well and then you have kind of the the opposite side of the coin where it's not even the archaeologists going to um indigenous members of whatever culture it is that they're looking at but i know i've worked on some projects in canada where it's actually been the the native population who's contacted archaeologists and said you know we want to engage more in, um, you know, public, public engagement and we want to participate more in this and some of it, you know, they might be interested in, in drawing tourists or, you know, whatever the reasoning is, but if you can get the, the populations that you're going to be studying involved from the, the very beginning and help frame the questions that you're going to be asking and the work that you're going to be doing you know, you have possibilities for a much richer, uh, much richer research and much richer understanding. Mm -hmm. And then you go into it with clearly defined boundaries of what is going to be archaeological information, what is going to be information for that population and what is going to be publicly available. Exactly. And I think that... <laughs> No one really realizes how much that costs. Yeah. <laughs> Again, and it's that's, always a problem that's with funding. <laughs> exactly. And and part of the problem, at least from the CRM, from the cultural resource, ma resource management, I can't speak, um, side, is the unfortunate, um, and this is a historically embedded problem in CRM, is the problem of underbidding. Um, and it's something that I think I've, we've mentioned on the show before um, in another episode, maybe not. Uh, but it is something that the public outreach portion isn't always as well planned for from the beginning. And much of that has to do with you don't always know what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. um, unless it's a historical site that's a record or tribes point something out. Um, but a lot of the times that's not something that they want shared. So it's, it's challenging and you can't share stuff about every site or every project. Um, but I do think that is one of the bigger challenges is trying to work in funding for that type of outreach when it is appropriate um, and feeling, I guess, brave enough to ask the client, hey, this is an important site. This is you know, what we have found. It's really great, and part of the requirement by law for 
you know, it's not just recovery and safekeeping of the site, but also public interpretation if it's considered something that the public would find interesting. So that is something that I don't think is touched upon or really done by very many CRM companies. I know of a few that try and strive for that and do a really good job, but um, I do unfortunately see that fall by the wayside more often than not. Mm -hmm. It's usually if it's part of the contract, it seems. Cheryl, what has your experience been with working with the public and your your work with the government or just your general work as an archaeologist? Lots of variation. Um, in, in Maryland, I'm noticing that there's a public uh, view on the, the cultural resource uh, sites that the Maryland Historical Trust puts together. And I'm not sure, I haven't compared it site by site, what the public can see and what archaeologists can see, but I'm assuming... The, the, the location information is, is less specific, but it is a good way of putting that out there. And in Maryland, there's uh, quantities more historic sites, and you can look up land records back to the 1600s, and you can see uh, the first deeds and, and when somebody uh, is deeded the property from the crown and when somebody makes a claim somewhere, and you can track that in the genealogical records. That's and pretty cool. You don't, yeah, and you don't have that prehistorically um, for obvious reasons. So there's, you know, the, the public, you can say, hey, that's a land record. We know this is the person whose name is on it. Anyone who's bought real estate knows about title, you know, and, and records. And it's just more familiar. And you've also got buildings. So you have foundations and um, things that are recognizably buildings, whereas you might not see that for a, a prehistoric uh, scatter of stone tools, you know, hundreds or thousands of years old. It's, it's just less familiar. So there's a little bit less uh, understanding of, of what is seen prehistorically archaeological sites and what they look like, and, and you have more public education to do mm-hmm. in terms of protection. That's a good point in terms of what you can see easily and mm-hmm. what and i'm sure that changes state by state because i mean in the four corners region of the united states you have pueblos galore and you can walk up to one and be like yep mm-hmm. that's a pueblo and but yeah i grew up in ohio you wouldn't know if something is a prehistoric site unless you walked up to a mound or if you happen to find a rock right. it's very specific and you had to know what you're looking for and i think that's and it's been- only part of the cultural system Exactly. Or you're not. You're only seeing the big sites. You're not seeing the little campsites or mm-hmm. the smaller pit house sites in in the Four Corners area. You're just seeing the big architecture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it all goes back to the information that's available to the public, and I think it sheds light mm-hmm. on. Well, yes, we need to definitely inform people more about these types of sites so that we don't, you know inadvertently harm them but at the same time we want people to be interested we want people to enjoy archaeology at least i hope they do uh but at the same yeah. time not destroy it and it's it's not even just for the public but we've talked a lot about different sites you might have pueblos you might have stone shelters you might have hill fort um you know mounds um thinking hill forts in you know Great Britain, that's mm-hmm. definitely the geographical location that we're talking about. 
but the archaeology that you get looks different in every area that you're in. And just because you're yeah. an archaeologist who specializes in one area doesn't mean that you'll necessarily be able to go to a completely different area and know what you're looking for. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there are certainly things that you'll pick out that the uh, kind of general public won't necessarily pick out. But if, if you don't know that area, there are things that you as an archaeologist can and will also miss. Yes, that's something I've run into here um, in Oregon somewhat often, partly because there's not really pottery. There's no pottery. Mm. It's all stone tool scatters. Um, But I also wanted to mention one of the sites that I work on, um, my advisor has been running for, I don't know, going on eight years now, I think, as of this summer. Um, and we have, it's open to the public. It's a large excavation. Um, it runs uh, 8,000 to 12,000 years old in the uh, Salmon River Canyon in uh, central, uh, north central Idaho. And we get tens of visitors. I think tens, it sounds kind of funny, but like 80 visitors a day. Uh, that come through there because we have like we're right on the river people who are rafting will stop come up and we have tour guides and that is a really unique opportunity that i haven't seen in a lot of places and we're partnered with the blm and um we are in conversation with the nez Perce as well uh whose ancestral land this is on and the amount that people learn just like getting an idea of what archaeology really looks like you know it's way deep it is not obvious it is like shades of sand (laughs) and stone tools that's more or less you know there's there's a few other things but that's by and large you know the bulk of it and people get excited and some people stay excited other people get like kind of like oh really that's it okay (laughs) So, you know, it, it helps dismiss the Indiana Jones idea. It helps dismiss that all archaeology sites are Stonehenge. You know, right. it's, it's things like that, um, I think, really go a long way and help. Uh, like we were talking about just what Cheryl said with um, educating the public about what an archaeology site really is. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely come back to that definitely so I, I think that's probably a good place to stop for yeah. our <laughs> second segment um yeah, I, and the crm archaeology podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession find out about networking strategies job hunting graduate programs and much more we'll often feature interviews with college professors crm business owners and experts as well check out the show on itunes stitcher radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash crm arc podcast let's get back to the show Welcome back. We're not going to get into the idea of heritage tourism and visiting massive archaeological sites and the potential uh, drawbacks of that. There are a lot of benefits. It's great sharing 
the information and sharing these beautiful archaeological sites, but there's also um, some issues with that because we have a lot of archaeological sites in the United States, like Mesa Verde, and it's visited so much because people love it, but in a way it's being loved to death because you have too many people and it can really strain an archaeological site to the point where you may have to close that. And I understand that uh, both Kirsten and Chelsea have some really good examples of these the, of this issue that we want to share the information, but at the same time, it can really damage a site. Yeah, so I am. Um, I've actually had mostly positive interactions with with heritage tourism. That's great. At the the sites that I work at, part of that is because they're in what qualifies as fairly to extremely remote areas, depending on your. Uh, preference for adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> and that means that even if you are actively recruiting heritage tourism and the, the community that you're excavating in really wants heritage tourism to be happening, you're never, well, I can't say you're never, but to date haven't gotten the kinds of numbers that you get at Mesa Verde or that you get at the pyramids or at Machu Picchu or in Pompeii. Um, or at Stonehenge, and you can keep a little bit more of an eye on what's going on. So you have communities that are earning an income, they're setting up businesses around these culturally important sites, and it's it's really beneficial for the community, and, and they learn a little bit more about what the archaeological record says about their past and you know it helps them economically and they're really really excited to share their history with the wider world but again I know and I mentioned during the break you know when you talk about Pompeii the Lupinara Grande has collapsed three or four times and um, if you go see you know the sites in in Rome or a lot of the the Roman and Greek sites. There are signs all over the place saying, "Please don't pick up the pebbles and and take them away." There was actually a girl a couple years ago who picked up a random rock at the Acropolis and ended up in jail because it was a very important rock mm-hmm. that she didn't realize. You know, she thought it was just rock, despite the fact that there were signs everywhere saying, "Don't do this." And when people come and they touch things and they pick rocks up to take home um, or they bump into things, you can end up doing a lot of damage to the site and then it's it's not there anymore. And that's where you then get the, the benefits <laughs> and the drawbacks because you want to visit these amazing places, but you have to be careful. And I think it just it shows that it takes a lot of planning, whether it's in the United States, whether it's internationally, on – how many people maybe you allow visit a day? Uh, what is the funding yeah. available for preservation and stabilization? Uh, do you need to close off an area for a few years or do something so dramatic? Um, I believe it's, is it Lascaux Cave that they completely shut off to the public? And yeah, I believe it's that one. They yeah, built the replica. Yeah. yeah and then, then they created a, a replica do we need to then have virtual tours as opposed to, you know, in person? And I think that brings up a good point that we want to have the positives for the community. We want communities involved with their heritage, with um, what is happening in that town. If the site is in a specific area, you want people to benefit and enjoy what is there. But at the same time, 
it, if that infrastructure is not there, it can be both negative for the community and the archaeological site. So there's kind of that balance, yeah, just... that careful balance. And I and um, Kirsten, I, I think exactly. you said that your example too is also a good one in that it's remote. So that somehow remoteness can be a really good factor in helping the community <laughs> yes. and protecting the site that you have exactly. to really want to go there. <laughs> to see. Exactly. And it, it's, you know, the, the site um, that I was mentioning earlier, it's, it's more like semi remote. It's remote enough that there is no digital connection whatsoever. Um, and it's down into the bottom of the Canyon, uh, a narrow deep Canyon, but, and it's, Mm, yeah, it's it's hours away from like actual civilization, and I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone who lives in rural Idaho. I love you guys really, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> living in a city, it's it's challenging to be out there all summer sometimes. Um, but aside from that, it's you know it it does support the community. Um, it's a, they love having us out there generally. Uh, but you know you always get. I don't want to say always. You sometimes get the bad apples. I think the site was vandalized a couple of years ago um, overnight. Uh, and, you know, so we put up, you know, hurricane fencing temporarily and to try and keep an eye on the, the place. But other sites, um, like you were saying, Chelsea, especially big, really known, well-known international ones, have really started clamping down on visitor uh, visitation numbers um, to try and fit the maintenance costs. Uh, when I was uh, in Europe, uh, specifically in Malta, there was a, this was 2011, so it's a while ago now, when the EU was still doing fairly well, um, there was a lot of money going into the maintenance and repair of a lot of the, the a lot of the citadel, sort of the, the big still used ancient city portion. Half of it was an archaeology site. The standing buildings were still being used by the administration. And there were EU workers doing maintenance on the outside of 100, 600-year-old buildings. And it was beautiful to see this sort of you know, teamwork in maintaining these sites. Um, but similarly, to make political statements, people would spray paint on the prehistoric temples in Malta. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was quite heartbreaking to see uh, when I was there and since. So it's with the, the pluses, you know, you, you get people's pride and involvement in their history and to be able to share it and feel validated um, with the rest of the world. You also get people trying to make political statements in the opposite direction. So, you know, as you guys mentioned, it's a careful, delicate, difficult balance. But in the end, I think it's worth it rather than trying to erase our past collectively. I've had uh, a couple of experiences with working in, in city parks. And uh, we were uh, excavating a particular site that was associated with the War of 1812. And they'd done some ground-penetrating radar to look for uh, defensive earthworks trenches and such and it was in a, a, a one of the f larger parks in Baltimore and we would we'd have dog walkers stop by what are you doing what are you finding and over the course of a couple weeks we'd have some of the same people checking back in with us day to day and you know so we'd, we'd stop at the screen and show them the artifacts and 
and and talk and you you know it slows you down but you're there to educate the public and you'll find this a bit of history for the public good and and it's all it was a very positive experience those are always fun i really had a similar experience taking out old tram tracks uh it was like late at night but yeah someone walking by with their dog what are mm -hmm. you doing <laughs> And those little one-on-one -on -one interactions are, I think, the most valuable. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad mm -hmm. you, you had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Have any of you had any experience of working at a large-scale site or doing a um, more more interaction with a large group of, of the public um, as opposed to one-on-one? -on -one? No, I haven't led tours or anything, but I've been... You know, in the unit when a tour has come by, and you you stop and say hello, and you know maybe I've said you know for a minute you know what's in front of me, what I'm working on that particular time, mm -hmm. oh, and well, the tour the guide takes the group. Mm. Yeah, the only thing I can recollect where I've done any of the tour guiding, I guess there's a couple of things, but the the main one is a number of years ago. I did a helped out with a public archaeology project for a um, fellow archaeologist of mine that I knew through the grapevine. Um, and for her, her master's, she ended up gathering the local in. Yeah, I'm not sure if anyone knows this, but in Oregon, there is a Civil War Society. Hmm. Figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> but they were wonderful, actually. Um, it was a historic site. It was one of the forts in on the coast here that has a kind of mind-blowing story, and I'll spare the details here, but we were excavating one of the officers' houses, the kitchen, and we had reenactors with cannons and the horses, and <laughs> to be able to have sort of the sparkly stuff there, um, and I think there was like a food <laughs> barbecue thing but it was a large event and we had a ton of people show up and we had, um, you know, the occasionally it was kind of roped off, but we had occasionally like a kid would come in and help screen. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're kind of put that balance between the one-on-one -on -one and the larger group. Um, and with regard to the larger group, I had worked with some, with, a local tribe in a different area of the state and developing an educational program for one of the state parks. And that was a fabulous experience for, it was large public group presentation. However, it was about the park and the sites that were involved, but it was not the excavation of the site. And we did not present the site. It was just underfoot. So it was sort of an experiential um, we had a couple of hands-on, like, monomatate stuff, um, mm -hmm. but it was, so it was a little bit different in that it wasn't a, you know, you're walking through this, you know, building or whatnot, um, and you're not digging in the ground, but it was, this is the place, this is where this happened, um, so you can't see anything here, but this is sort of the story, and that was really uh, neat to be able to do. That's really cool. Chelsea, I understand you have a similar story. I, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a similar story, but a story about uh, what like long-term public interaction can have on a site. Mm -hmm. um, and this is less of an archaeological site specifically. Um, 
I actually walked uh, about 100 miles of the Santiago de Compostela Trail in Spain oh, when I was sounds amazing. Wow. 15, maybe? No, it was 15. <laughs> uh, you know, so we all flew to Europe and, and walked, you know, 12 to 14 miles a day in this beautiful countryside, and we stopped at hostels, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And when you uh, end up at the, the church, the Santiago de Compostela Church, you can, you can get in a line. And they have this pillar that is supposed to be one of the, the original pillars from the, the church. And you'll forgive me because this is more than a decade ago and the specifics are slightly vague on <laughs> this, this structure. But the, the point was you could, you could stand in line and then you could touch a particular place on this column that was supposed to have been touched by a particular saint, I believe. And when I went 10 years ago, it was fairly popular. I know from talking to another person who walked the trail about 15 years ago that it was not as popular then. And when you, you go up to touch this bit, and it's, I mean, it's stone. It's, and it's like a, a very durable. It's not, you know, like a super grainy, loose stone that you can just wipe sand off of. It was, you know, like very dense, very hard stone. And in order to touch this part of the stone that was supposed to have been uh, touched by the, the saint individual, you literally had to put your hand into what was the imprint of thousands of other hands touching mm-hmm. the stone. It was about 14 inches deep. <gasps> wow. Oh, uh, wow. Where wow. over the years. Wow. Right. Some and quantity. it's just so many people. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm not talking about people, like, pushing on or scraping at. I am just talking about people placing their hand on this spot. Mm-hmm. And enough wow. people did it over a long enough period of time that it managed to wear a human hand-shaped hole <laughs> into this stone. So so even if you are being as careful as you can be, um, you know, and, and as aware as you can be, you know, that's that old... A flap of a butterfly wings can create a hurricane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there are cases where, and, and obviously this isn't an archaeological site. Um, Definitely historic, <laughs> right? But it's yeah. but it is historic, and you know there there can be consequences for that and so for the popularity you know, of sites. Touching rock art, and you have you know a thousand people a day running through some famous archaeological site and touching one wall let's say at mesa verde touching one pueblo wall well like chelsea's uh-huh. saying over time it could move maybe a couple centimeters and eventually just pff, collapse doesn't take much just one touch <laughs> yeah exactly one touch over time and the cultural tradition is such you probably can't touch a different spot it's got to be that one right it does exactly. have to be that one everybody's spot. drawn so to everyone yeah, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong, it, it was really cool. the same petroglyph, yeah. You know, not, not just because of this one individual who was supposed to have touched it, but the idea that you're touching the same spot that thousands mm-hmm. of people over thousands of years has, have touched is like a mind-blowing experience. And so, of course, you're going to want to do the same. <laughs> right, and I, right. I did it. Like, it's 15, <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> 
Well, I think that's a good spot for us to then go to our closing thoughts about publicly available information and what is available, what isn't, what should be, what shouldn't be, and then the benefits and the drawbacks of these major historic archaeological sites that people can visit and really experience but can also lead to damage. So what are your closing thoughts on our topic for today? I mean, I don't know. I, I, like <laughs> Chelsea's story is just, that's a great, like, sum. Yeah. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. There's there's this, this emotional experience that can be wrapped up in visiting these sites, and that's why people go. And you don't right. want to tell people no, don't go and experience this in a bodily, sensory way. But you still want to make sure that it's there for the future. And that's where funding for maintenance and repair and just trying to keep up on the people coming to the sites. And, and the yeah, I guess just if, if people want these sites to be here, we have to be able to take care of them because there are so many people in the world anymore that it's, you know, it's stuff will get run over so fast if we don't take care of it properly. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. Sure. I, or I would <laughs> double down on that. It's, it's about balance. You want to balance the right of the public to see these places with the desire to make sure that they're still here five, ten, a hundred, a thousand years from now. Exactly. And, and, you know, the public, you know, at least, you know, federal and state sites and in, in a park, you know, it's public property in a sense and public ownership. And the more you have people understanding what happened, the more you have buy-in and thinking about that in terms of, you know, funding cuts that certain politicians want to anything that relates to history and culture and museums. And you have to have the public buy-in to, to support you know, the work we do. But you also have to protect it and balance all of it. So it seems in essence what we really need is balance. Balance in what we share, balance in what we do, balance in how these archaeological sites, historic sites, etc., are presented to the public and how the public visits them. So ladies, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I I enjoyed our discussion. And thank you so much for being part of it. That's amazing as always. It's great. Thanks. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Emily. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.